When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we are talking to the one and only Justin McGrail. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 151. Project Up and Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Got a great show for you today, an interview that has been long overdue. I've been wanting to interview Justin McGrail for quite some time, and I was fortunate enough to cross paths with him when I was on my Western hunting trip made the connection, and Justin and I caught up shortly after both of us returned from our trip, talked about hunting out west, talked about bird dogs, training, all sorts of stuff. We answered a couple of impromptu listener-submitted questions, and as you can imagine, had a very, very informative conversation with Justin McGrail. couple things to cover before we jump into our show today. This will be the final episode of the Project Upland podcast as hosted by yours truly, Nick Larson. After this episode, my podcast will be switching names to, I know you've all been waiting very patiently, the cat is out of the bag a little bit. You may have caught wind of this already, but the next episode of my podcast will be published as the Birdshot Podcast 
and I could not be more excited to get things underway under the new website, the new show, all of the things that I am continuing to work on. It is a work in progress. Birdshot Podcast is the name. It was suggested to me by a friend who I got to know through my local Rough Grouse Society chapter. I had tons and tons of submissions. Many, many people encouraged me and gave me thoughts and ideas and recommendations. And honestly, every single one of them helped, whether or not they ultimately ended up being the name or not. Each suggestion and recommendation submitted by you, the listeners, helped me in making my final decision. And I can't thank you enough for all of your help and support along the way. The Birdshot Podcast, it's pretty simple. Whether or not it resonates with you, I'm hoping it will sort of take on a life of its own as the show continues and goes forth. But to me, Birdshot is one of those terms that it reminds me of when I first started grouse hunting. It was a term that I don't know how much it gets used anymore, but when my friend suggested it to me, it was one of the very few names that I heard and thought that could be it simple representative of bird hunting, shotguns, the things that I am most passionate about. And to be honest, I was ready to choose a name and start moving forward. And I felt the Birdshot podcast was the right name to move forward with. So I'm very excited. I've got some artwork created. I've got more on the way. I'm working on websites, working on a whole bunch of stuff that I'm going to update you, the listeners on in probably a shorter solo episode in the very near future to kind of announce a few things and get things moving. Stay tuned for that and be on the lookout for the forthcoming first episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks again for your patience, and I can't wait to share with you all what I've been working on over the last couple of months. Very excited about it. Stay tuned. All right, before we get into today's show, I want to mention the Upland Institute, a series of training videos put together by Justin McGrail, Ron Bain, very fitting of our conversation today. Justin and I talked about them a little bit towards the end of our conversation today. I've seen the videos. I've been through a lot of them, not all of them yet, but I plan to continue to use them in the training of my bird dogs. And I will say that if you enjoy today's conversation with Justin McGrail, as I've said before, I encourage you to check out the episodes he's done on the Hunting Dog Podcast. There are a whole pile of them. And if you like what you hear from Justin on today's show, on those episodes, and you feel like you are in need of additional resources, education information on dog training, these videos are worth checking out. They are a continuation of the information and resources Justin has given out on his various podcast episodes. We've got the visual component. You can see the dogs. You can see how Justin handles them. You can see when he's using the e-collar, when he's not using the e-collar. There's just a lot of quality stuff in here for folks that are looking to build upon their foundation of training knowledge working your, working with your dogs in the backyard, this stuff is going to help you. So check that out, uplandinstitute.com. There's a couple different series and video courses. You can kind of pick and choose what suits you, but absolutely worth checking out if you are in need of that kind of a resource. September 30 today, which means it is October tomorrow. Rough Girl season is on. I've been out a handful of times since I got back from my Western trip. Took my three-and-a-half-year-old son along one day, and I shared a little story about this on my Instagram account, but we were fortunate enough to actually have the dog point a grouse, held it while me and the three-and-a-half-year-old made our way off the gated forest road into the aspen cover. I saw the bird. I got my son, Hunter, positioned safely, made sure his hearing protection was on. He was ready, flushed the bird, shot at the bird, killed the bird, had a lot of things 
go right in that situation that don't often happen like that. But needless to say, I had a very, very exciting, memorable moment in the woods on my first rough grouse hunt of the year with my three and a half year old son, Hunter. He was, he was super excited. He honestly surprised me at how excited he was and he thought it was cool. And the dog was there and we got some pictures and that was a blast. I've been out a few times since and a little too early to say what's going on. It's, it's hot, it's thick, conditions aren't good, it's very dry in the woods. I haven't been into a ton of grouse, and I'm not sure if that is indicative of what is to come this season, or if it's just the kind of head-scratching stuff that goes on in the early season sometimes, but so far, pretty mixed results, but we'll keep at it. We could use frost and some cooler weather. That would help a lot. Hopefully we get some of that soon. I think with that said, we'll get into today's episode. Again, stay tuned for the first intro episode of the Birdshot Podcast coming your way very soon, followed by a continuation of this podcast, which will now be titled the Birdshot Podcast. Much more to come on that. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And let's welcome into the conversation and onto the podcast, Justin McGrail. Welcoming Justin McGrail to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today, man. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been a, a certainly a long time coming. I know I've been listening to your episodes with Ron Bame for a long time, since well before I even started doing this podcast, and it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Did you ever, uh, did you ever think you'd be such a frequent podcast guest back when Ronnie convinced you to do one for the first time, Justin? Never. I am not a computer guy, not a technology guy, and, and, and he wore me down and convinced me to do it. And once I did, you know, I, I kind of had fun, especially when we got into a lot of the people sending in questions. And right. one of the big reasons I do what I do is I really get a lot of enjoyment out of helping people that are new to the sport. And, um, and it really was educational for me too to get that nationwide feel of what are gray areas for people that um that are brand new and that don't have a human mentor to kind of show them the ropes that knows bird dogs and bird hunting and, and that's been fun for me yeah absolutely there's there's uh we'll, we'll talk plenty about it but before we before we get too far ahead of ourselves i mean i'd like to think that a lot of listeners have heard you before on Ron's podcast, but for those that haven't, why don't you give us a brief intro of kind of who you are, where you're from, what you do? Yeah, home for me is Lower Peninsula, Michigan. I just turned 49. I've made my entire life's work training bird dogs, and that was made possible by uh, my first high school job was cleaning kennels for a gun dog pro. Um, that's what planted the seed. He was he was my first good mentor and kind of took me under his wing and I got the bug and I couldn't kick it. Um, I've never wanted to do anything else. And, uh, I've been, I've been really fortunate. Did you talk to me about it? You probably have covered this before, but when you stumbled into that job cleaning kennels, were had you been exposed to bird dogs and hunting? I mean, was there, was that underlying already there? Hunting, yes. Bird dogs, no. My my father was, uh, and still is a fisherman, 
Okay. And so uh, that was the outdoors influence. Dad and I, we would we were trout fishermen. And from the time I was just a little squirt, you know, wading little brook trout streams yep. and uh, and, and that actually, uh, incidentally is where I flushed my first rough grouse fishing for brook trout. I was probably five. And I remember that thing blasting out of the ferns along that stream. And I turned, my eyes must've been huge and looked up at my dad. What was that? <laughs> he said, that was a pat. That's what all the old timers used to call their pat. <laughs> and, uh, yep. I, I can still remember that. I can't remember the first rough grouse I ever shot, but I can remember that, that one, first one I ever flushed. Um, the hunting influence in my life was, uh, an uncle of mine. And, um, he was one of those guys that he hunted everything, you name it, deer, turkeys, waterfowl. If there were pheasants around, there used to be a lot of pheasants in his day and, uh, the Southern portion of the lower peninsula, he hunted everything and he started taking me out, introducing me to hunting. Um, he had a lab and everything. Uh, but as far as serious bird dog guy, that, that trainer was, was my initial influence. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned the, the trout stream one. I, I definitely, I had already, I think I had already been on my first grouse hunt, but not hunting, but just walking along with dad and stuff. And I was, I remember fishing for rainbow trout up in the woods around here, Duluth, where I grew up. And my cousin and I, we rode our bikes to the stream and we're in there and we're fishing from trout for trout. And I rem- like you've, you've heard stories like this before, I'm sure. But I remember fishing and thinking to myself, who in the heck keeps firing up that lawnmower, or that dirt bike that I can't figure out what it was. And I don't, I don't honestly don't know that I don't know that I put, put two and two together that day, but I now know that, uh, it was the, yeah. uh, the consistent drumming of the rough grouse and, you know, rough grouse and trout streams kind of go hand in hand in that regard. <laughs> Yeah, and the trout opener is usually around the time mm-hmm. that they're drumming away. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's cool. And then you got going with bird dogs, and really kind of never looked back. We we don't have to sort of like go into the entire history of, of things, but like talk to me a little bit about like you know from cleaning kennels to where you are today, just kind of how that progression like developed for you with dogs and guiding and you know everything that you do today. Yeah, it was, you know, typical kennel grunt, whatever he needed, cleaning and feeding dogs, go catch pigeons for him or whatever he needed done. And I think I hung around there long enough doing chores um, that he thought, well, I'm going to, you know, start bringing There are certain portions of training that a helper can can be beneficial, you know. So he started bringing me out in the field with him and I started watching what he was doing and doing what he asked me to do for him. and. And then the next step was um, he started showing me just some of the core, basic, foundation check cord work with these dogs, teaching me how to do that stuff. Um, I started teaching these dogs to to turn and recall here and whoa and heal. I just started with basic, fundamental teaching dogs what these English words mean that we need as hunters down the road. Yep. And then uh, he, he gradually kind of, you know, all under his watch. And these were all dogs that he was training and, and helping me along. And then as I learned more, he kind of, he'd give me more to do and, and give me a, some freedom to learn some stuff on my own. And, uh, you know, I got my, 
I didn't have a driver's license when I started. My mother used to give me a ride to kennels, and I got my driver's license. Now I want to hunt. And, and you know, when you get your driver's license in Michigan, all of a sudden you can get yourself what we call up north, right? You go up north to northern Michigan. That's where our bird country is. Yep. Best. And, and I started wanting to go once I had my driver's license. And he would always give me a dog he owned that was like, if he doesn't come back with this dog, it ain't the end of the world. <laughs> um, so the, that was always my first grouse hunting was with whatever dog he thought. He, I don't think he could lose this one. And and if he does, it ain't the end of the world. Because this is way before GPS or right, any stuff right. we have now. And, you know, over time, uh, I, I earned, earned his trust with the dogs. And I, I have one memory of the first really great grouse dog that he let me take and this is not a dog that i had trained this is a dog he trained but he said this dog needs time and i'm busy i can't go and it was a setter named sparky and that was i i i have one particular hunt that i will never forget with that dog that's the first true spectacular performance in the grouse woods that i ever saw in my life and and uh that i think that right there probably showed me wow there, these dogs are can be amazing. Yeah, if we give them what they need, and you got the right genetics, and that was back when the woodcock limit was five. Yep. And um, I I remember when I was a, a novice hunter, I used to take a whole box of shells with me. I dump half in one pocket and half in the other. <laughs> and, and and I remember getting into so many. I mean, I literally walked from point to point for yeah. like two and a half hours. And, and I remember I was down to one shell and, and I had four woodcock in my back <laughs> and, and, you know, like I wanted that. I was young. I wanted that limit bird, you know, and I, I passed on two or three tough shots and then I finally got a layout and I still have that old Polaroid picture in my desk oh, right is that? now of, of that Sparky. It was one of those instant where the camera spits it out, you know, right? yep. you think, yep. and I still keep that in my desk drawer and, uh, old sparky with my vest laid out and five wood guy and that and i've been i've been chasing performances like that mm. ever since you know you don't get those there's a lot of hunts there's a lot of workouts there's a lot of training sessions every now and then you get treated to that when everything comes together right and for me that that's the magic of this sport that's the special stuff yeah that's very cool and yeah obviously the fact that it's stuck with you is you know, symbolic of kind of like what, what your life has gone on to be. And man, the, those memories. Yeah. That's, that's why we do it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. Well, I, I do want to just kind of let listeners know if they have not heard your episodes with Ron Bame, you know, they date back to like, gosh, I don't, it's 2015 or 16, quite a while back. And you've done quite a few of them now. And they, you know, they started a little differently, but then they developed into very much question and answer dog training stuff, uh, listeners write in and you guys got better at sort of curating the questions and getting more information out of people. Cause you know, you know, this, like you get a lot of questions where the question's pretty simple, but you don't have all the details, age of the dog, you know, breed of the dog, you know, all that context. Yeah. yeah. Where do you live? That's a big yes. one. You know, what, what are you, what, what are you able to do with this dog? Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, that's where I think as you and Ron sort of developed the the system on like, you know, getting those good questions in and answering. I mean, like the, there's so much value in those episodes and they just, they're out there for folks to check it out. So hunting dog podcast, look up Justin McGrail. And if you like what you hear on, on today's show and 
Uh, we're going to talk about some things, the Upland Institute and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, that's there's there's plenty more for folks to go check out, which is what I'm getting at. But I want to talk to you about you just off the off the tail end of your western trip, myself included. We actually crossed paths out west a little bit. But yeah. before we sort of leave the the throwback vintage era stuff, I'm curious, and maybe this will kind of get weaved into our conversation today. But how much? Because you, you mentioned check cord, and you know, of course, before GPS collars and stuff. How much of dog training, just like from your perspective? How much has developed and advanced, and then how much has like stayed the same as far as like core principles? Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure, a lot has changed. You yeah. know, um, some of it for for the good, and uh, I, I would say the evolution of the e collar yeah. has changed the face of dog training. Um, when I started, they were pretty crude, you know, in terms of functionality. They really you could use them to curb a dog from chasing deer. You didn't have variable intensity at your fingertips. There was no momentary stim. It was a one button mm, continuous. Yep. And, and you had to pick your intensity. You used to have these plugs that you put in the collar, one through five. And so you picked your poison and you lived with it. Um, Before you strapped it on the dog. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and so whether you, if you needed a little something subtle or, uh-oh, he's going after a deer or whatever, <laughs> You didn't have what we have available today, and the trainer I got my start with, he's retired now, uh, Jim Ripkema, He His career path paralleled the evolution of the e-cow, and he uh, was really one of the, I think, guys that nobody uh, was aware of that first learned how to use that advancing technology to get away from these being a last resort corrective device and how to use them as a true teaching tool and for, you know, ongoing command reinforcement so that you don't take any major steps backwards in your training as you progress. And these dogs are getting more and more freedom and there is no, okay, we're training and now we're hunting. You are still training when you're hunting. Things absolutely happen while you're hunting that you cannot replicate in training. And so that puts you in a position to kind of protect your training, keep the dog moving forward, understand, yep, those rules still apply here today. And he knew how to do that. He, I got lucky that my mentor was a great trainer because there's, uh, there's a hundred other trainers that I could have got a job cleaning kennels for that couldn't have taught me what he did. Yeah. And, and I, did, I didn't know that until many years down the road. I thought everybody knew what he knew, you know? Yeah. So that was the luck portion. Um, and then GPS, uh, you know, I wouldn't be without it. Uh, I mean, just as a safety tool, yep. you know, there's a lot of functional benefits to it. I remember I used to hunt a lot of chuckers. I worked in Oregon from 93 through 97. And, you know, that country has a canyon country, a lot of terrain. Dog would go over the hill. And if he didn't pop back out, you had to go over there. You don't know. Is he down there pointing birds? Did he keep hunting? You... Now we know that at a glance. Yeah. And and allows us, it gives, feeds us information to be better dog handlers and, and better hunting companions for these dogs. And so that has been huge. I, I think some people, what hasn't changed is the need for a lot of puppy development in the field. Those old timers had that figured out. I mean, those pups were out and about in the field, in the woods, in that environment all the time. And you're going way back, you know, they were like loose farm dogs, right? And yeah. 
they they learned how to hunt stuff. They figured out chasing Tweety birds is is futile. We don't. There's no need to do that. And they developed their senses and they developed those predatory instincts without a whole lot of human influence. Well, now we have dogs growing up very often in a pretty sterile environment. They're around the house in the backyard and subdivision. So they're not getting that early development many times without an owner who says, this is important. I'm going to put that puppy in my truck and I'm going to drive somewhere today. That's a safe place to take him for a nature walk. Right. Yep. And, and I get a lot of people who bring me six, seven, eight, nine month old dogs who have not been out of their backyard yet. And they are just so overwhelmed by the environment that they have to go through that before you can make any strides forward in making them a bird dog. Mm-hmm. Every yep. pile of rabbit poop is fascinating. And every little smell where a mouse was is fascinating to them. They're continually distracted by this new environment. So that need for that puppy development um, is still, that's never going to change. And, and no technology can give that to your dog. You got to go get it. Right. Um, and a lot of people just by virtue of where they live now, it takes effort and everybody's busy. They don't have that out their back door. I think that most people probably don't have that out their back door. Um, so you got to make the effort to do that. And then uh, the way I, I train, and maybe it's just because it's how I learned, and it's what has worked very well for me, that hands-on check cord foundation. As they're growing up, they're developing, they're starting to hunt, their instincts are kicking in. I need to teach that dog, you need to turn when I ask you to turn. And that, that's going to allow me to start to build a pattern on a dog. And when I call you in, you need to stop what you're doing and come all the way in. And woe means stop and heal means heal. Those are the big four for me. Turn, recall, woe, and heal. Yep. If, you, if you can master those four things with a dog and get them to do them reliably and well in all situations, you can pilot your dog through anything that happens. And, and those are the four, four core foundation handling commands. And, and when you don't do that foundation hands-on checkboard work, you can't be consistent. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you can get their attention, sometimes you can't. And, and that inconsistency leads to inconsistent results. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know? Yeah. And so I, I'm a big proponent of that. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good stuff. I- couple sort of little commentary there, like on the GPS caller, that's one that, you know, I just, I lucked out in that as I was coming into the bird dog world seven years ago, the Garmin Alpha 100 was on the market and I got that right away. And just like you said, like I could not imagine hunting without one now. And it really became even more clear. I would say last year when my second bird dog bringing her up in her puppy season i mean when she was hitting her stride and like starting to cover ground and stuff there was a couple times where she got a little bold and she took off but like the fact that i could look down at my gps and see where she was like was the only reason that you know i i remained sane and like didn't take it out on the dog or anything like that you know i was able to manage my own emotions and stuff because i could see where she was i mean that that peace of mind is just i think it's valuable in a lot of different ways well it is and i think prior to that a lot of people in that moment would tend to assume the worst and reach for any collar transmitter yep 
and much to the detriment of the duck. Can you imagine that poor dog? He's just over there hunting, yep. looking, and he's and, and and all of a sudden, whammo! This jolt from his collar. Why? Yep. You know what, what? What does that do to a dog's mind? You know, and there's no reason for that. And you know, I used to, in the open country before GPS. I can't tell you how many I used to carry binoculars in my vest pocket, and I'd start hitting the high spots and scanning for that little speck of white yep. out there because. If you're running ambitious athletic dogs with a lot of drive in open country, they all go through that phase where they're they're gonna they're gonna make some big casts and 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 very often in certain terrain they're not being outlaws they're trying to find you they're just a little turned around it takes a lot of time for a dog to develop that handler awareness yep and 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 we can help that with training with that patterning work but you get them out the real world and these dogs need to learn a lot of stuff on the job and and that gps allows us that peace of mind that insurance policy but it also lets us make better decisions yeah for sure i mean i there's no there's no doubt like we've got we've got it easy in a lot of ways and i give i give you guys credit everybody that was that was out there doing it before heck before beepers you know when it's just bells and stuff i mean but it's certainly that technology allows me who's an amateur in every sense of the word to to actually give my dog the benefit of the doubt and and remain silent a lot too you know so i'm not yelling at her and teaching her to stay with me based on my voice i mean all that stuff helped and i mean now she's boy i i don't have to say anything to her i mean she's she sticks with me she handles so well and i think you know that's in part because i was able to give her that freedom and and we developed a good relationship last fall nice is she a two-year-old now she she's one and a half she's one One and a half half. she was yeah she was pretty young last year and um my older setter hartley tours tore his cruise sheet at the beginning of last year and so i was left with the puppy and we took it real slow and just kind of you know it was the beginning of the season was just puppy walks but i've i've talked about this at length kind of before on the podcast we had some real good late season weather and it allowed her and i to keep hunting late into the year as she aged and matured and she got a lot of a lot of experience and exposure last year that i was by no means expecting to get and it's it appears to show because she had a really good trip out out west chasing sharp tails and she appears to have picked up right where she left off so i'm pretty pretty excited about it yeah they usually do and like you said our paths crossed out there yeah and um you know i had a couple young dogs on my trip and you know i mean we're both really lucky that we can give that to a young no kidding yeah any, anybody that has a young dog, I, I preach this to my dog training customers. Those first two years are so important. If there's ever a time to weasel away from work and home and, and go give your dog an extended trip somewhere, that's the, that's the window to, to do it. The more you can give them those first two seasons, it pays off. I mean, it just accelerates that learning curve. And, you know, the trip I just got back from was a three-weeker, and I had a eight-month-old little female setter puppy with me. And if you could have seen that dog on day one and saw her on her last run, whole nother animal. Yeah, different dog. I mean, that, that dog was using her nose, going to the likely places, starting to produce opportunities for herself, and had some just knockout points on wild birds in three weeks right when i took her out there she didn't hardly know boo because she was just a little squirt this spring and 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 when i i mean i i had to go run her in the grouse woods wednesday morning because we were overcasting cool here Mm, and i watched that dog in the woods and i'm going 
Yeah, I like this. You know, <laughs> yep. in three weeks, that the the development that dog made, it was just that's it's just it excites me still. As many times as many dogs that I do it, I don't ever quit getting fired up about it. Yeah, that's so. that's cool, man. That's very cool. So on that note, I guess I want to dive into a little question here. I want to get your thoughts on the. It's not the question I want to ask, but how young is too young, and like how do you, you know, how do you. How are you monitoring the dog's behavior and, and looking, what signs are you looking for from the dog to let you know that, you know, this dog can be taken into wild bird cover and possibly have a bird shot over it? How do you think about that? Yeah. Well, gun introduction is, you know, before you even consider actually hunting a dog, I want to be a hundred percent on that, yep. that no matter what happens, when a shot goes off, how many shots that dog is, we are not going to create any issues there. And that can be done a ton of different ways that you do a whole podcast on gun mm-hmm. intro, but if, if that's in place um, and the season's open, you know, I'll always carry a gun. Um, as far as the other stuff, what I'm looking for is, you know, they're always going to go. I don't, I don't care how old they are or where they're at. If I'm going, they're going, they yeah. don't learn anything staying home, but you give them what they're ready for. If they're little short pups, A, um, going on a, a little hunt trip, whether it's a Saturday, Sunday near home or a long one, they're learning the routine and, you know, traveling down the road, being let out here and there. And you can always find a little, carve out a little spot uh, during your day to take that dog for a little puppy walk in puppy appropriate cover. You know, some dogs are real bold go-getters. And other dogs are a little more passive and clingy and unsure of themselves. So you give them what they're ready for. And if they're not into the gun, I still go out looking for birds with them. As, sure. long, as, as long as you're not putting a dog in cover that is intimidating to them. You don't want a dog dragging along right next to you or not. You know, it should be fun. Find some little short grass, take them for a little puppy walk. And then... There, with with all this stuff, there is no X on a calendar. I think a lot of people want that. Yeah, they they they, they kind of feel like okay, at six months my dog should be doing this, at, at ten months my dog should be doing this. It's so much more the individual. I've seen five month olds that you know we're shooting birds over. I mean, these dogs are bold, hard charging. They've been for tons of puppy walks, acclimated to the gun, and they're starting to find a few. And then I. I've known year old dogs that they're out there and they still don't really know why you're there. <laughs> um, yep. And it just, cause they didn't, whether it's in the genes or the environment, it's usually a combination of both, but you're not going to see, I think a lot of people maybe start to have negative thoughts about a puppy far too soon because they've gone out three times mm-hmm. and the dog's not doing what their friend's dog is doing. That's you're just scratching the surface. This is a journey, you know? I've seen a lot of dogs I was real high on as puppies and they kind of plateaued early and they were okay dogs, but they never really got a lot better as time went on. And I've seen dogs that at a year old, I went, I don't know about that dog. And I see them at three. Yep. That dog is sure enough, the real thing, you know? So persistence is the key and, and, and having the awareness to give them what they need when they're ready for it. Yeah, that's good stuff. And I, I know I've, I've heard you talk about that concept before, you know, we, it's like almost human nature, you know, we'd love to be able to say, oh yeah, at 12 months, you know, it should check this box, this box, this box, but it's, it's way more, has way more to do with reading your own dog and what exposure they've had. And just like you said, I mean, you know, somebody that 
that they live in the city and they're, they can pretty much just get their dog out for a leashed walk on weeknights and stuff. I mean, that dog's, it's going to take more exposure and experience before versus somebody that can walk out their back door and be in grouse cover or something. Yeah. And, and that's, that's okay. Do you know how yeah. many people call me and, and they're like, Oh, my dog's 14 months old. I haven't done this. I haven't done. That's okay, man. Your dog's going to live a long time. It, it doesn't, you just, you do what you can when you can, and you, you will still get there. You will still get there. What one guy can give a dog in one year, it might be three years for the next guy. Yeah. And, and I always feel like at times I need to be an advocate for the dogs. And, and when somebody is down on their dog and it's a dog that just hasn't had enough opportunity, I always have to point out that, you know, that doesn't mean your dog's not a good one. He's just not had enough time. He's not, he's not had the time and the opportunity yet. And if it takes you because of your lifestyle and everybody's busy and family and work commitments and all that stuff. Um, so what if, if it takes you three seasons to get him there, that's okay. Yeah. And that's fine. All right. Circling back to the Western trip a little bit, obviously yeah, you had dogs out there. Uh, I'm kind of curious on like what your goals are, you know, you're trying to get them on wild birds. You weren't doing any guiding out there this year, right? No, my, uh, you know, I, I've stepped away from that because now my road trips, I kind of cap at about three weeks. And when I was guiding, it was more five or six out of whack. Yeah. You know, I used, I used to be on the road for about 12 weeks a year. And, uh, I have a, a wonderful little daughter now that I just don't want to be away from home yeah. that long at any one time. That's important to me. So, um, so I stepped back from the guiding. So now, um, you know, I missed some of the friends I made along the way sure. and, and I had a lot of guiding clients that quite honestly, I would have hunt with them if they weren't paying me. Just great guys, fun guys, true, became true friends. I do miss that part of it. But the upside is now I can kind of go where I want when I want. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> and so I have some more mobility to it. And guess what? If it's 82 at one o'clock, I'm going to go take a nap. I don't have to take another loop today. Uh, wait <laughs> yeah. for the evening. Uh, so there's some perks to that too. And uh, yeah, the goals for the dog, um, I've always tried to, you know, rough grouse is my home bird. So mm -hmm. I try and plan my travel to bracket that window here on both ends. And so the early prairie trip, huns, sharp tails, um, that's the right venue pre-grouse season for me. Yep. And I think there's some real benefit to that. Uh, I never bought into the myth that if you want a rough grouse dog, you should only work them on grouse. I mm -hmm. think that's, I think that's baloney. Um, wild birds are uh, all good for dogs. There are some certain cover types I avoid with sure. young dogs, but um, for as far as the birds themselves, no. And, I'll tell you what I think the biggest benefit is for young dogs out on the prairies. A young dog needs to learn to feel his birds. And by that, I mean he needs to learn how his actions affect those birds. So in the grouse woods, leafed up early season, they got sent, they're working, and maybe that bird goes. Yep. I think half the time, I don't even think they know it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, they they might hear them sometimes, but if they got a bell clanging on their neck, I think sometimes they don't necessarily make that connection. When they're out on the prairies, they see those birds, and they see how the birds react to their pressure. 
And, and one of the traps with puppies is bad pen-raised birds, right? And so I, I preach this to people. Look, a bird dog needs to become a predator. And a dog, just the same as a bobcat, right? And they cannot become a good predator when their prey is not afraid of it. They get away with all kinds of stuff yep. that they shouldn't as a predator, right? So there's some bad habit stuff going on there. So out there they can see how those birds respond to what they do. And we can see it too, yeah, yep. which, which you, you don't get in the grouse with. And uh, that, and I've always felt there's tremendous benefit. Um, I, I don't know that there's a better young pointing dog bird than young family groups of sharp tails. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just a match made in heaven. And, and when those young dogs learn that, ah, well, there's not always just one there, you wouldn't believe what that does for them. If you can show them enough of them, you know, and you can let some of that chase come out of them. Let those puppies chase those birds just until their legs fall off. And you'll watch them. You don't say with no influence from us. And they start learning. You know, I don't want to correct a young puppy for chasing a bird when right. they're young. They're, they're learning to love this. Let them self-learn that that doesn't get them anywhere. Right. And they come back and they find more. You can watch that chase come out naturally, which pays off down the road when we go to teach them to be steady. They've semi accepted that chasing is pointless. And 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 when you when you can do your steadiness work with a pointing dog after they've been given that life experience. It falls right into place. I think so many people now, whether it's to pat themselves on the back or in this rush to have this ultra steady pointing dog at a really young age. I see that. I don't go down that road with my dogs personally. I just I see too many negatives crop up from it. Not 100. There's no 100 percent dogs. Sometimes people get away with it. But I think a lot of people like to, you know brag about their dog which is essentially bragging about themselves and my my seven month old is this that or the other mm. thing he's still a puppy yeah. you know and he's doing what you told him but he hasn't really learned to be a bird dog he's learned to do what you tell him to do and 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 in the real world of hunting we can't tell those dogs everything they need to know they need to have that innate knowledge and skill set and that that comes from time yeah Oh man, there, I don't know that I would have gotten into that, but there's, I mean, I, I share some parallels with you in that obviously I'm kind of a rough grouse nut living where I live and that's the, that's the core of my season. But I've, I've come to appreciate taking my pointing dogs out there to the short grass prairie and man, the things that you get to see specifically when it comes to, you've got a more consistent breeze, you know, you don't have all the cover and you see like a dog working the scent and, I mean, number one, how much those sharp tails I think can move and run through the cover. Like, you know, you get the relocation going on and stuff. And then, but seeing the dog be able to work and put things together, I mean, man, you just see some beautiful dog work out there that we don't, we don't always get to see back here, especially early season. Yeah. And you had one word in what you just said that bam, grabbed me. And I think a lot of rough grouse hunters don't pay enough attention to this. And we're talking about like developing young dogs early out west that consistent breeze mm-hmm. okay so a lot of this cover uh, rough grouse hunting very much can be like yeah, from the hunter's perspective this looks good this looks good this looks good right a, a visual objective yep. stuff. some of that western country for the dog it looks pretty much the same yeah. as over there and over there and over there and 
and you can watch those stocks. I believe that that is the best venue for a dog to fine tune and develop the use of their nose to, to be keenly aware of using their nose to sift those air currents. And they carry that back into the grouse woods with them, that skill set. Totally different environment, but that skill set is transferable to any and all hunt. And, and I've watched that happen. This dog come back and the dogs are pointing birds from further away. They're mm-hmm. finding more birds. And why is that? Well, they still have the nose they were born with. They're just using it a whole lot better now. Yeah, it is very fun to watch. And again, yeah, I, I often, I wonder, just like you said, a lot of times in the grouse woods, man, just given the cover, if it's early and it's leafed up, I mean, it's like you always want to kind of analyze everything in a black and white way, but like, I know you just can't do that. Like you just, you don't know if the dog never had any scent or the, who knows what the wind is doing in the grouse woods versus, you know, compared to out there. So it's, it's hard to, not every situation is, is the same, obviously. Yeah. One of my pet peeves is when people, you know, if there's a grouse in the air and the dog was anywhere in the vicinity, oh, he bumped that bird. Mm. You, You can't say that. You don't know that. Do you know, did you get enough intel? Did you have the view of what was going on there? You know, yes, the dog was certainly the reason for his departure. <laughs> okay. But that doesn't mean he had a fair opportunity to point that right, bird. Right, right. You know, and that's what it comes down to. The best of them can only point what they knew was there. And a dog just ha- running through and a bird happens to blow out. He never had a fair shake at that bird. That's, an, that's not a bumped bird. That's an incidental flush. Right. The bird happened to be near where the dog was coming through and he wasn't going to stick around to see what happened next. The dog didn't do anything wrong. So and I think a lot of novice dog people, I mean, it it happens. The best of dogs. Yeah, they're going to cause birds to leave by their hunting efforts. And they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't intentionally put that bird to flight. Yeah, you know. Now there are dogs out there that do intentionally put them to <laughs> right. Uh, a lot of dogs go through that phase, and and you know this this rough grouse dog, you know, almost as a, a really great grouse dog is kind of a rare critter. And I think a lot of people, it's not always a matter of more work. Like I wasn't born to go to an Ivy League school. I just wasn't. And a lot of dogs aren't born to be exceptional rough grouse dogs. And that's that's just life. That's okay, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know, they, they all become as good as they can if we do our part. Yeah. The, I think the other thing you could say there too, is, you know, if, if you were there to see the bird flush, you can't remove yourself from that equation too. You know, you were applying some sort of pressure on that bird as well. And I think like what I keyed in on what you said is I've had to learn this, you know, because when you're training pointing dogs for the first time or first couple of times, you know, you hear things, don't shoot bump birds, only shoot pointed birds. So as, as amateur trainers, we're trying to figure, okay, what's pointed, what's bumped. But I've just come to look like what I look for is the intent of the dog, which is what you said. You know, you can tell if a dog has scent and then races in and quote rips a bird versus a dog that, you know, he's just hunting and a bird gets up. Like you can kind of see the, the intention if you're if you're paying attention and and that's what it's all about in in term from a training perspective yeah you know you don't want to reward intentionally flush birds Mm -hmm. but you know most guys if that dog's off to the left hunting and they foot flush a grouse and they got a beauty shot at it they're probably going to shoot that 
Yeah. And, 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 and there's no detriment to your dog's training by doing that. You know, he was, he was uninvolved, but yeah, a lot of people try and make that, well, it wasn't pointed, so I can't shoot it. Well, probably wise not to shoot it. If that's one of your pet hunting and training spots, leave him alive and maybe you'll get him pointed next week. Yeah. But if you're in the boonies somewhere, you'll never be again. And you want to shoot that bird because grouse tastes good, right? Yep. You're not, you're not setting your dog's training back by doing that. Yeah. That that's, um, so I'm going to, you're kind of addressing it, but I had a, uh, somebody reach out to me this morning or yesterday and was sort of asking my thoughts on a similar, similar topic. And I was like, well, you're in luck. Cause I'm going to be talking to Justin today. So I'm going to run this by him. And I got the details. I'll just, I was going to want to throw this in there. Like, I, I know you hear this a lot. Like we amateurs, we're trying to train our dogs and we're trying to get the best out of them. But at, at the end of the day, you know, hunting season comes around and we have limited time in the field. And so it's, it's this, like, it's just this pull. You're just always going to have this, like, I love to hunt, but I want my, the best for my dog. And how do you fit everything together? Right. And that's what, that's what you're talking about here. But he said he had a, he had a dog that was working. It was like 30 yards off to his right. It's a seven month old German short hair pointer first season, 30 yards off to the right. He had a wild flush bird get up on his left. He killed it brought the dog in, got a retrieve and the dog was excited and stuff. And he was just wondering if, you know, if that would be considered a mistake or not. And I think you've kind of addressed it. No, the dog was uninvolved and most likely that's how he's going to hunt, right? For the rest of this dog's life. Mm. So the dog is learning, you know, Hey, he's learning to come in and hunt dead after a gunshot. Right. And, you know, you'd see, he'd see that all the time when people hunt, uh, you know, friends hunt together and the guy off to your left or right, you know, he foot flushes and shoots a bird. Bring your dog over here. I got him down. Right. Yeah. Um, so the dog's kind of learning that's part of the hunt and there's no detriment to the dog by doing that. A lot of those young dogs, though, when that happens, if they were uninvolved, they'll point that dead bird a lot of times. And here's one thing I've always made a habit of, um, when that young dog, wham, he was uninvolved with the flush and the shot, a bird, but he comes over there and he hits that smoking hot grout dead bird scent, whatever kind of bird it is, wham, locks up, right? Yep. To avoid any confusion. Yes, we know it's dead, but those first year rookie dogs, I think they're treating it just like I found a bird. Mm-hmm. I don't encourage them to go in there and grab it. If they're going to stand there and point it, I'll walk in there and try and find it. I'll pick it up and toss it to them. Dead bird. Dead okay. bird. Just to avoid any potential confusion, right? Uh, you know, they, they hit this smoking hot bird scent point, and then you tell them, no, get it. Get it. And then 10 minutes later, they point a healthy bird. Right. Well, uh, and now you're telling me, don't get it? Mm. I'm supposed to – you don't want me to move? So – so that, that's a little tip for puppies. You know, in time, the older dogs, they know when you're looking for a down bird and, and when you're and when it's a new bird. Uh, but that first season when that happens, as long as that dog will stand there, I'll let him stand there and point that at Okay, so then kind of taking that a step further, I think that addresses his question. But, you know, is there, because there's always, you know, like in moderation, right? You can have too much of a good thing. You know, yeah. if, you've got a, if you've got a young dog running around and there's, birds wild birds flushing up everywhere like is there a point where you're saying hey you know like i'm not going to keep dropping these birds like i want the dog to be involved like how do you think about that yeah if you've got that um if you're in an area that has that many birds 
Okay. And that's starting things start happening. You're in them, right? I will do a little timeout with the dog. Mm. We're going to call you in, put you on a leash. We're going to let things settle down here a little bit. Those birds aren't going anywhere most of the time. And, and just, okay, let's take a little break, have a little water. Let that dog mentally ratchet back down to earth a few notches. (laughs) And then, and then if I know I've got that many birds to work with, we're going to, we're going to try and point some of these, you know, this is a training opportunity here. And I've said it before, we're all going to eat dinner that night, no matter how many we shoot or don't shoot. This is an opportunity to help our dog become better and learn something. Now, it'd be great if that happened all the time. Right. There were yeah. that many birds, you know. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time, it takes care of itself. And with puppies and wild birds, you know, I tell people it usually takes care of itself. If that dog points and holds his birds well enough for you to have a shot, shoot him. Mm. Um, you know, you can you can worry about your advanced steadiness between. For me, it's between season one and season two. That's where I, the first season is about developing pointing skills and instinct and then letting them learn from the birds. Um, and then I step in and start to teach some formal steadiness between season one and season two. But that first year, if they pointed them well enough for you to have a shot, you're probably good to go ahead. You know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That I was, I was going to ask that too. Cause again, yeah, a lot of, a lot of first season pops out there and, you know, think about it. Like, let's say you're 60 yards away dog goes on point you cover the 60 yards and then the dog is maybe moving but doesn't run straight in and rips the bird but you know it gets up like you know that would be an example where you might take the shot and connect the dots for the dog yeah i i would i wouldn't hesitate in that situation that's a puppy learning the ropes and he did some fine work right there and and where you wouldn't, and I think this is where some people might be confused. See, you haven't taught that puppy that he's still supposed to stay put yet. He's mm-hmm. running on instinct, right? We're developing instinct with that first season puppy. Now, if it's one of my dogs that has been formally steady and they have been taught that, no, I do the flushing, kiddo, right? When I arrive at a point, you stay put right where you're at. If that dog moves on my approach, and the bird goes, absolutely, I'm not shooting that bird, right? Yep. Because we have taught that dog that that's not how we do this. With the puppies, they haven't learned that yet. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not breaching any training. And I'd be just tickled if, you know, a first-year puppy stuck a bird like that. Like you say, you make your way over there. Maybe they move just a little bit right as you're getting in there, but you can shoot them. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I guess something that I've kind of told myself and like, I did more of this with my first dog because I was so afraid to make that. Well, I thought you could make that critical mistake. You know, if I shoot a bird that my dog bumps, like he's ruined forever, you know, that's how, that's how I was thinking when it was my first dog. And I, I didn't shoot hardly at all. And I don't know that that was necessarily detrimental to my first dog, Hartley. I just think not taking a shot is usually a pretty safe bet. But right. I think you could take that too far, you know, if the, if the pup's doing a bunch of good work and, and pointing birds, but it's not textbook perfect because you don't know what to expect, you're missing some opportunities there to get to get that pup excited and get a bird in his mouth. You are, and, and it kind of completes the circle for that puppy, yeah. right? It kind of lets them see this is, aha, you need me to find them, point them, and I need you to get them. Yeah. 
you know, where, where they, that light bulb comes on that, wow, this, this is how this team, we need each other. Yeah. And, uh, and dropping birds for those puppies kind of helps them connect all those dots. Yeah. I just, and like with my, that teamwork that, that, that resonates with me. Cause I, I had a little different approach with, with Rose last year in my second dog. And I was looking more for teamwork. You know, I wasn't looking for something out of a textbook or a, or a painting. I was looking for teamwork and I felt like that, that worked well for me. And we, uh, you know, she's, she appears to be doing really well. So that's just things you learn, man. I mean, you, you've seen tons and tons and tons of dogs and I've seen very few and there's just a lot of perspective and, and development that you as the handler hunter, you know, it just takes time and experience. It does. And ultimately we're at the mercy of their genetics. And, and that is such a huge component of this. You know, we can only give them as much as we can and you can train every dog, the mechanics of what they're supposed to do, the commands and the response to those commands. But at the end of the day, so much, makes them the bird dog that they become that's in them from birth that's inherited from their ancestors and you can modify some behaviors but you can't rewire a dog's genetics and and i get asked a lot you know when people are considering uh getting a dog you know whether it's breeds or i don't I'd stay away from breeder recommendations mm-hmm. but what kind of dog should i get and the best advice i can give people is have a clear picture of what you are going to do with your dog. What kind of hunting do you want to do the most? What, what do you have the opportunity the most? Okay. Find a breeder who does that. And that's into that, that does it a lot because he's, he's going to gravitate towards dogs that are naturally and genetically good at that. You know, people buy dogs from all over the country and sometimes it's a good dog but not for what you do. This is just a little bit of a genetic mismatch here. Yeah. And so take the time to sniff out somebody that's got dogs that are really good at what you do the most of. And that doesn't necessarily mean a certain, not always a certain type of dog. Mm -hmm. You know, a few years back when I was still guiding, I had one season where my crew of dogs, we hunted 10 different species of wild birds in one year. And so, I think the skill set necessary to be a great prairie chicken dog is really similar to a great, you know, bob white dog or a rough grouse dog. They need brains. They need a lot of bird sense. They need a killer nose on them. And, and they will learn to become good at whatever they get the opportunity to do the most of. And there was, uh, I, I don't think you got to meet him, uh, where, where our paths crossed, but there was a fella in camp, uh, for a few days from Arizona and his dog had never been to that kind of country before. And, and at night he was kind of a little bit down, a little bit disappointed in his dog cause she was staying really close and therefore not finding much. And I think he hunted for three days and I said, man, you need three weeks this year yep. and then three weeks next year. To, to, for that dog to figure, you know, dogs can't figure things out in three days. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And on that note, I think like, this is what you're saying. I'm just going to attempt to clarify a little bit. Cause I think a lot of people do, they sort of like, they say, I want to hunt this bird. So therefore I need this breed. But what you're saying is that the decision tree doesn't necessarily like it. It's almost, if you're not predisposed to a certain breed, like if you're not, you know, I'm going to have setters the rest of my life kind of thing, you know, 
think about what bird you want to hunt, where you want to go, what you want to do with it. And then comes, you know, what are all the different breed options that can do this? Cause there's, you know, there's, there's breeders that have certain breeds can hunt all different kinds of birds. Yeah. Within each, you know, people like to paint things with one brush, you know, yes. these dogs are good at this and these dogs are good at that. Within every breed, there is such a spectrum exactly. of different dogs and different hunting styles, you know, and you know, a lot of dogs are hardwired to hunt at a flat out run and cover some country. Okay. Well, I don't care how determined you are. You're not going to turn him into a methodical 25 yard quartering mm, dog. Yeah. If, if that's what you wanted, you didn't do your homework. So I think hunting style yeah. uh, of a dog is really important. Find those dogs that match your hunting style. Naturally, you know, the closer we can get genetically to what we want, the better. Instead of trying to mechanically alter how a dog for a hundred years has been bred to do things, that's uh, exercise and frustration for yeah. dog and person. Yeah, you're shortening the distance between two points there by getting yes. getting what you want genetically. Yeah, yeah. good deal. All right, I, I got another uh, another training example. This came up talking to a buddy of mine. Um, he two and a half year old English pointer out on the prairie. She's been steadied up, so she's wearing the flank collar and she was coming in on the prairie, coming in on some sharp tails, came out on the wrong side of the wind. Birds got up. He stopped her. She either stopped her or she stopped on her own. He walked in just like you were talking about earlier, you know, sharp tails, early season, sharp tails, a straggler bird got up. She was standing. He killed that bird. Is that a yes, no, it depends kind of situation no. for you? That's a big yes. Okay. That's a, you betcha. You betcha. And that's a great learning experience for a dog. You know, there's all these different tiers of steadiness. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of guys who are hunting on raw DNA instinct pointing. Sometimes they point, sometimes they hold them, sometimes they don't. Um, just, I have found dogs that are steady to wing and will stop to flush, which that was an honest stop to flush. Wrong side of the wind, birds started lifting, dog hit the brakes. You go over there, produce another bird. That is a prime example of why I'm a proponent of steady to wing and stop to flush. That was a shooting opportunity that was created through steadiness matters. Yep. Without a concerted effort to train a dog to stop the flush, that dog would have been off to the races after those birds and probably run that other one up. Correct. And it's a great learning opportunity for a dog, too. That that gives the dog a reason to be steady and stop that makes sense to them. There's more, right? And, and these guys that all, I do it in my off-season training. You wouldn't believe how many times, whether it's pigeons or released birds. Yeah, I got three or four of them in one spot. And, and, and those dogs learn, ah, there's more. And that dog just learned something very valuable. And by all means, he was green light to shoot that bird. That's good dog work. Yeah, and that's it. It goes back to what you're saying. I mean, again, like when talking wild birds, like those early season sharp tails. You know, I had some, I had some great moments like that with my my setter, getting her stopped after some birds are in the air and producing more. I mean, like man, that kind of stuff. Uh, like you just like you said, that can produce additional shooting out there that you would otherwise not have a chance at. Yeah, and that it kind of gels everything for the dog. You know when that real world application of that. Yeah. And, you know, a long, long time ago, I hunted quail in Kansas with a landowner who was kind enough to let me on his grounds. It was probably 20, 21 years ago. And he had this short hair. 
this dog, she knew her name, and I think that was the extent of her formal education. <laughs> Everything else she learned, she learned hunting birds, okay? And this guy lived in great bird country. And so him and I are out together, and the dog goes on point, and we go over there, and about, I don't know, maybe eight or ten quail, they go out of this plum thicket in front of her, and the dog doesn't budge. And we didn't have a shot. They stayed behind some cedars. And he looks at me, and he goes, there's more. And we took a couple more steps, and about four more went out. Pop, pop. Now, that dog had never been taught well, and she'd never been formally steady. But she learned from hunting covey birds a bunch. Don't don't chase those first ones when there's more on the ground. So there's a there's an example of a dog given more opportunity than most of us can give our dogs on wild covey birds. But learning that, you know, no, if there's birds on the ground, stay put. Yeah. Stay put. She she actually now, if it was a single pheasant, boom, off she goes. She's gone. Right? Yeah. She's gone. That was uh, that was an example of a dog that I when I saw that I went wow you know these dogs there if if you can give them that kind of hunting opportunity they can learn a lot of stuff from these birds but the training tip the off season training tip is when you're doing steadiness don't use all single birds precondition your dog to multiple flushes yes uh, yeah that that's something that we can do to plant that seed and then you know, give them as much of the real world as we can. Is that kind of a drill, something somebody might see in uh, an, up, an Upland Institute video? Yeah, well, when you get to the steadiness stuff, yeah. um, like all of my pigeon steadiness, I, I never have a pigeon in a launcher out in front of a dock. I always do multiple bird sets. And um, it, like I said, it gives the dog a reason to stay put that makes sense to them, not just because we tell them that they have to. Mm. And it kind of sets the stage for the real world. And, uh, yeah, when I did that, I, I thought, you know, I'm not going to leave anything out here. And one of the things I was encouraged to do in that project was not only include some stuff for some guys who have had a few dogs that maybe want some finer points of this or finer points of that, but I was also asked to make sure that this is really complete beginning to end for a guy who just came home with his first eight week old point yep. and truly is at a zero baseline level of knowledge. And, um, so, so we did that. And I, I, the surprising thing for me has been how many guys who have had two or three dogs have seen some of the puppy stuff in there and go, I never knew that, you know? Yep. So it was fun. Yeah, can pretty much put me put me in that book because you know I've I've talked at length about my two dogs and sort of where I'm at in my journey. And the listeners they know they hear me talk about it all the time, but I got to see some of the videos. And man, I, I'll say the one thing that I took away was, and I know that this was a goal of yours because you know Ron or you know you talked about this or thought about it, and you went on YouTube and and you sort of talked about how you can go on YouTube and see some good stuff, but you can also see some stuff that's not right, but what you really don't get is the progression and, you know, it can just be a snippet here and a snippet there. And that can be a recipe for disaster for people that are just getting started training. And so the idea behind the course and putting it together in this way is that you're going step by step and you're seeing the whole thing from start to finish, including an individual dog. You know, you, you guys show puppies that have never seen a bird before and you show dogs that are way further down the, the line of progression and that's all very clearly stated throughout yeah and when we were kind of kicking this around uh, you know i 
first I said, no, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, they're called, well, why not? And, nah, nah, nah. and, you know, most of the stuff that's out there is uh, kind of done almost out of necessity. Uh, here's a demonstration of the process with a dog that is more or less finished. Right. Yeah. And, and so the dog just does it. And I said, you know, if we're going to do this and we want it to have some real educational value for people, I want to follow dogs through the process. So you can see that dog going through this whole process. And that's why it took us over a year to do. And it's, it was kind of fun in the editing process to look back and watch some of those dogs. First of all, I'd never get to watch myself work dogs sure, ever yeah. until now. That was kind of interesting. I, I'm not perfect. I catch things that my timing could have been a little better. Yeah. So I'm my own. I'm my own worst critic. But, but to watch those dogs. Oh, look at this dog in May. You know, just learning basic woe stuff, and then you see him going through the steadiness process, and then you see him handling coveys of birds and. And, and then applying that on some wild birds, it was kind of neat to in the editing process for me to watch that. And and I hope that, you know, people who utilize this to learn something about dog training, I think a lot of people, when they watch stuff and the dog does it well, perfect, sometimes, you know, that the rest of the stuff gets left on the cutting room floor. I wanted to show the mistakes yes. and show, you know, show that. And all dogs go through that. And I think it I hope it gives people confidence that what their dog is doing is normal. They all do that. That's part of the process. And here's how you work through that to, to get to your goal. Yeah, I would absolutely agree that from what I have seen, it's a step in the right direction in that manner. Because like when I was preparing and reading and reading books and stuff on how to train to train bird dogs, you know, you read about and it's it's no fault of the author. Like you just you can't you can't go through and describe every possible scenario that could play out, but it's all yeah. that, it's all that nuance that ultimately, you know, makes or breaks the dog or, or improves its development and moves it further along that progression. So at the end of the day, you're just going to have to learn by experience, but we're getting better and better. And we're getting some more quality resources in order to see and show dogs. Like that was the big thing is seeing, like, even when you're introducing the e-collar, I thought that was super cool. You, you put it on the, just like we've, we probably all read about, you put on the lowest level and you move it up and you move it up. And then just a real subtle indication from the dog. And you point that out in the video, like for somebody that has zero baseline to be able to see you do that, I think is, is that's re really, really where it's going to be valuable for folks. Yeah, and you know, with new dog owners, that the e-collar thing is a real concern for them. Mm -hmm. They don't want to mess that up, and yeah. I'm glad that people have that. And so I really wanted to teach people how you incorporate that into a dog's training for as a teaching tool for command reinforcement. And then you you know, we we have what we've kind of referenced as a timing light because you're not going to see a major reaction from the dog when I'm collar conditioned. Right. Now. And so we incorporated a little timing light on the screen so you can see exactly when I'm using stimulus on that collar, when it comes on, when it comes off, when I use the momentary, when I use the continuous. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback on that. Like, okay, I now have some confidence that I can use this thing and use it in a productive manner. Yeah, that was a really smart addition to the the videos and yeah, just like you said the you know, you don't really even want to see a, a a reaction from the dog other than it, you know, perhaps obeying the command or stopping or whatever it is. So seeing that button on the screen to know when you're when you're given the stimulus as a trainer, that's super valuable. Yeah.
Awesome, man. Well, yeah, that's uplandinstitute.com. I will have all the links and stuff. There's there's a basic course and then there's advanced training. Are there are there three of them? I got it up in front of there, me here. Yeah, yeah, there's three of them. So the one we call Foundation and Fundamentals yep. kind of carries you from itty puppy, just got your puppy. And there's all kinds of little things I do with puppies that you're training them, but they don't even know they're being trained. Right. You're, you're, plant, you're planting your seeds in the dirt. You're making what you're going to do next go well. Uh, just simple little things that you can do in the course of raising a puppy. And then it goes through introduction to birds, introduction to the gun, developing their field instincts, getting them ready for season one. And then we carry in, we included in that one, we carry those foundation core commands all the way to a pretty high level, which isn't always going to be done before season one, but we didn't want to break it up. We wanted to have some continuity to it. And then the advanced bird work series is one that is really about steadiness, training, honoring, and I kind of have this thing I want to teach people about unproductive points and relocations. I, mm. I thought, you know, that that is a that for you imagine you're a novice pointing dog owner. They, there's a lot to know about that to understand what these dogs are doing out there. And then me being me, I wanted to show these dogs applying this in the real world with some wild bird work out on the prairies and in the grouse woods. That's in the advance. And then I get so many people retrieving is a big deal. For yeah, yeah. Some, some people not, some people yes. So we have the third one is completely dedicated to the trained retreat. Retrieving is genetic. Not all dogs catch it in the same dose. Everywhere from non-existent to their knockout retrievers genetically. If you're a stickler for retrieving, a lot of these pointing dogs are going to need a little help from us. And that one is 100% on the trained retrieve. And I followed one dog. I used a couple other dogs for some example in there that this dog didn't throw me that are common things to have happen. But mostly we follow one dog from her first day on the training table to retrieving shot birds in the field. And, and so you get to see every little step. All the trained retrieve stuff I've seen in the past is with a dog that's finished, right? And that is a component to dog training that I think is largely misunderstood by a lot of people. That process of mechanically teaching a dog to retrieve that doesn't have it genetically. Okay, so I have a question on that on that thread. I've got my my one and a half year old set of rows. She is showing more tendency than than Hartley did to I don't know if you would call it naturally retrieve but she's picking up birds pretty much every bird that i shoot she's picking it up and she's carrying it around and i don't know i don't know what i should do other than like right now i just kind of stand there like an idiot and say rose rose i'm all excited i killed the bird and and you know i i I imagine there's something i i should do to kind of coax like you don't want to race over and grab it from her i i kind of know that but like what would you do if you have a dog that is picking up a shot bird she's kind of prancing around proudly with it yeah you know like you say, coax what you can. This mm-hmm. is all natural at this point. Sometimes move away from her, mm-hmm. calling her, kneel down. That always naturally sucks a dog to you. All good news. If she comes in, you know, don't snatch it from her right away. Mm-hmm. Just, yep, that's nothing but good news. Now, had a girl. Good girl. And then do that throughout this, this hunting season. Coax what you can naturally. But if she's picking up and carrying birds, I always tell people, you know, I got a lot of setters. <laughs> it's a coin flip with setters. In One and three, right? Department. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> um, you know, within certain family lines, it's going to be stronger than that. Sure. But um, as a whole, that breed is not noted to be uh, consistently knockout retrievers. So 
let that develop all good news when she's prancing around. And then the best thing you can do, if you've got a dog that'll pick up and carry game consistently and that's developed, well, then by and large, it becomes a matter of a really strong recall command here, right yeah. here. And, and just nurture that along and see how that comes. I've got one young one uh, that I have two setter puppies this year. They're about eight, 10 months or so, something like that. And, one of them, I can already tell you, I think this dog's going to be a pretty strong retriever. The other one, it's just not in the cards right now. Now, at two, I can't tell you how many puppies don't retrieve that first season very much. Yep. And it's lurking there in the genes, but it doesn't all, they're not spaniels. They're not labs, you know. And sometimes they just need a little growing up and maturity and time. And all of a sudden, they start packing them in. But a lot of people that I'm coaching on retrieving with their dogs, you know, if you're getting to like a two-and-a-half-year-old dog, got a couple good seasons under its belt, and it just isn't happening, and it's important to you, you're probably going to have to do something if, if, if you want to achieve that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Good deal, man. Well, yeah, I, I haven't been through all the videos yet. I've been through I've been through a bunch of them, but, boy, you caught my attention when you talked about unproductive points and relocation. I see the video in here now. That's That's, you know, that's the gray area. That's the question mark when they're relocating at unproductive points. I'm, I'm really eager to watch that video and the, there's stop to flush stuff in here and uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was stuff I feel kind of like this falling through the cracks and I agree. instructional stuff. Yeah. And I wasn't going to leave that unaddressed. And if it helps some people understand that a little better then uh, that, that was the hope. Yeah. Good deal. Well, folks can check that out at uplandinstitute.com. And as I said before, you know, if they, they kind of like what they hear on today's episode, go check out the podcast from, from on Ron's the hunting dog podcast. And if you love all that stuff, you're going to love the videos. I mean, it's, it's Justin and, and it's the same kind of training methodologies and practical application and it's good quality stuff. So encourage everybody to go check that out. Justin, what do you got ahead, man? Growl season, you're running dogs, you're getting in the woods. Yep. Um, like I said, I was out two days ago. That was my, my first time since I got home from the, yep. the Western trip. And uh, so I'll be finishing out the season. I do have to come over to to Minnesota oh, that's for right. a week there. Yep. yep. I'm going to be out there uh, October 3rd for just a week. And then back here and here in Michigan, you know, boy, I, I start getting excited about mid-October. That's where we start sliding into prime time, you yep. know. And uh get get as much time in the woods as i can here and then i'll work a few more young dogs uh we shut down for our firearm deer season mm-hmm. here which is no november 15 so i'll get back to training some young dogs dogs that were not old enough to hunt this year but are now old enough to start get a little stuff done with them before winter sets in and around the first of the year when the snow starts flying here it's i start getting quail on the brain (laughs) time to hit the road again and go go work the dogs on some quail yeah that's awesome yeah it's it's always it always goes by too fast and it's always fleeting but at this time of the year you know late september it feels like boy we got a lot of good times ahead don't we yeah i just i I wish october was about 90 days long it it comes and goes so fast every year but uh, it's exciting it's it's right here yeah, so. absolutely. Well, Justin, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and talk to me and the listeners, and I really appreciate it. And like I said, I've, I've been uh, been a fan of, of your training methodologies and listening, and, man, it's 
it's a lot that you've put out there for people in my situation that are that are learning this stuff and you've got a lot of experience and now we've got additional resources in the upland institute and shoot man i look forward to keeping in touch with you and we'll bring you back on and we'll talk dogs again soon that sounds great all right justin you have a great day man yep you too thanks take care yep Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.